You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Glad you could join with us, both here and for those watching online. Hello to you as well. Um, So as you've already heard during the Advent lighting, today's theme during this Advent season is on joy. And um, we're we're mixing that in with our sermon series on Luke as well. Um, But because uh, I was preparing for this message um, all week, I've had the song Joy to the World stuck in my head all week. Just my brain was literally repeating the sounding joy over and over. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king was on repeat. You can just ask my family as well because when it's stuck in your head, you have no choice but to belt it out all the time, right? Uh, so I've been singing that at home too. And, and while normally having a song stuck in my head can get annoying, and it, it was probably annoying for them, uh, but <laughs> honestly, it was actually pretty helpful it was actually a pretty helpful reminder for me during a week, week which consistently uh, tried to suck all the joy from our life and ruin Christmas, right? For real, on, on top of everything else that's going on now because of you know, COVID restrictions, most of us won't be able to gather with family or friends for Christmas, extended family and friends for Christmas. And for some of us, due, due to finances being tight this year because of the economy and, and job loss and stuff, uh, there also won't be very many presents under the tree. And, and to top it off, for a couple of you, your spouse might even make you watch a Hallmark Christmas movie. Um, can it get any worse than that? Right? <laughs> but yet, it's supposed to be a Merry Christmas, or as Harry Connick Jr. reminds us every year, the hap, hap, happiest season of all. But this year, it's not difficult to ask, what's so merry about it? What's so happy about it? Which, which, which is why, probably more than ever before in, in our lives, we need to remember and hold on to the truth that the enduring good news of great joy, which we've been given at Christmas, isn't found in things, isn't found in experiences or even family dinners. Ultimately, it's found in a person. As the shepherds were told in Luke 2, 10 to 11, as we just heard with the kids' message, the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you, wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your Savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. So this is the reason we rejoice, right? The the good news of great joy was given to us through the incarnation of Christ. That is when Jesus came into the sinful world as a baby in order to be God with us. So our joy is found and secured in Jesus alone. As uh, Joel Beek and William Bocast write, Jesus came to earth to bring joy and explain where it may be found. People look for joy in food, drink, friends, family, work, and recreation. As believers, we find some satisfaction in in these things, but because the things of this world are fleeting, we may not seek ultimate joy in them, and neither should they move us to great despair. Or as it says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not things, but righteousness and peace 
and joy in the Holy Ghost. On that end, I, I think it's important to note that, that when the Bible speaks of joy, it's not necessarily talking about this a feeling of, of happiness that's gained through emotional highs or in things or experiences that can come and go. It, it definitely should make us happy, right? But, but rather, God desires to solidify and seal His joy in us with His presence. Just like His peace, just like His hope, as we've been learning, biblical joy is meant to be eternally with us. And therefore, it stands to reason that this joy that we're talking about can't be found in earthly or, or temporary things. As C.S. Lewis writes, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The, the joy of the incarnation is that Jesus brings this otherworldly satisfaction to us, this heavenly satisfaction to us. Jesus brings the kingdom of God and its subsequent joy to us. And we can, we can see this, this elation being expressed throughout the whole story or, or narrative of the birth of Christ in the Gospel of Luke, uh, especially so when Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, Right, as was read to us during the, the Advent candle reading. Right, both are pregnant with their promised children, Mary with Jesus, the Son of God, and Elizabeth with John, who would become John the Baptist. And, and as soon as Mary enters the room where, where Elizabeth is, John, who again is still a developing baby in her womb, leaps for joy at simply being in the presence of Jesus, who again is still in Mary's womb. And then Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and she joyfully exclaims a, a blessing over Mary for her faith, and of course over Jesus, who she refers to as her Lord. And in fact, Elizabeth actually becomes the, the first person to refer to Jesus as the Lord. And then, and then Mary, in response to this joy, breaks out into song and recites what we now call the Magnificat. And, and she writes, at the beginning of it, she writes, my soul magnifies the Lord, and, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So there's, there's so much joy right, in this story, right? So much rejoicing. As Tabati Anyabwal writes, these two women meet together and erupt with joy. They're not just joyful because they're both having babies. No, they know the Lord has shown them favor. They know the inside scoop on God's plan for their children. Their joy is supernatural. A couple of weeks ago, we learned during, our, uh, during the message on hope that because of God's character, because of his faithfulness, which was proven to us through Jesus, we can now be so confident and so assured in the promises of God yet to come that we can even rejoice today as if they've already happened. And Elizabeth and Mary are showing us this, right? They're, they're doing just that. They believe and they rejoice in God's plan of redemption through Jesus before it's even happened. They call him Lord. They call him Savior. They rejoice in his salvation. And he's not even born yet. That's a supernatural joy, right? And, and, and from our perspective, on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection, how much more should we be rejoicing in Christ than in the promises of God? We need to be reminded of this joy, that it's come to us, 
And God wants us to know it and experience it and live in it, especially today when, when something like it feels so hard to come by. This desire is, in fact, the prayer of the psalmist David in Psalm 51, 8 to 12, who calls to God in, in a time of despair and guilt. And he says this, let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crushed rejoice once more. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all my guilty deeds. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside me. Please don't throw me out of your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. So King David, like I'm sure many of us today, is, it, he's praying that his joy would be renewed. But you'll notice that he's praying with, with, with a very clear theological and humble understanding of what's keeping him from this joy and, and in turn what will restore his joy. He understands both the problem and the solution. And the problem he writes that's keeping him from knowing this joy is his sin and guilt. Dr. James Boyce adds to this idea when he writes, nothing destroys joy except sin. And David knows this. His, his guilty deeds have, have weighed him down and crushed his spirit. Right? His, his enmity and rebellion against God have disabled and disqualified disqualified him from being in the presence of the holy God. And so the only way for his joy to be restored, he writes, is threefold. Number one, only by the grace and faithfulness of God alone, because he can't restore himself. It has to be only by the grace and faithfulness of God alone. Number two, by being purified from his sin and being made new. And number three, through dwelling in the presence of God and being filled with his spirit. That's how his joy can be restored. And, and the good news that the, that the angels declared to the shepherds and which Mary sings about in her Magnificat is that Jesus would be and is the direct answer to this prayer. Not just for David, but for Israel, for all mankind, and for the world. Jesus is the solution to our joylessness. He accomplishes all three of David's requests. Listen to this. Number one, he accomplishes his request because Jesus, by the mercy of God and his grace alone, is the gift to us, which we did it and couldn't earn ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then number two, because it's Jesus who purifies our hearts from sin and makes us new. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And on that note, we rejoice because three Number three, it's Jesus who reconciles us with God and also fills us with his spirit. Ephesians 1.13, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
And when you believed in him, in Jesus Christ, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we see that Jesus is the complete answer to David's prayer for the joy of his salvation to be restored. And, and since we're on the subject of being filled with the Spirit, what, what's one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit? Joy, right? And, and what did Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah all do when they were filled with the Spirit? They were filled with the joy of the Lord, and for them, it was, it was a momentary filling at that point. But in Christ, we get the Spirit for life, for all life. On this topic, Greg Forster, in his book, Joy for the World, adds to this idea when he writes, and, and you know this quote will be good because his name is Greg. He's, he says, I call this holistic Christian life the joy of God. And when I say joy, I don't mean an emotion. I mean the flourishing of the whole person in mind, heart, and life. This flourishing is a transformation that extends to all of life as an integrated totality. All right, so the good news of great joy demands and enables a total transformation in our hearts, in our souls. Therefore, to know Jesus means the joy of our salvation is now written into our DNA and is both sustained and cultivated by the presence of his spirit within us. We carry this joy with us, and this joy is our strength to persevere and press on. It's our call to worship. It's who we are. And if you don't know this kind of joy... I want to encourage you to use Psalm 51 as, as a prayer this morning to humbly come before God. Pray this psalm. Lord, return to me the joy of your salvation. Pray it. And then humbly acknowledge and believe with faith that Jesus is the answer to this prayer, to your prayer, and you will be saved. You will know the joy of his salvation. Because this is the truth. God wants us to know it. And again, like his peace, he wants to seal it within us. For it to be an, an eternal, peace-inducing, hope-filled, unending joy in him and him alone. So that as it says in Romans 15 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And that leads us to, to another thing I, I want to talk about this morning, how this joy changes us and then calls us to respond, right? How, how this joy calls us to respond. Elizabeth and Mary give us the, the biggest clue, and it's kind of obvious, Right? We're called to respond to this good news of great joy with joy and hope, right? With rejoicing and giving glory to God for his goodness and his mercy and for what he's going to do. That's what Advent is all about, right? To rejoice in the arrival of Christ and the reason he came. Wilhelmus Beckel writes, The reason one does not rejoice in the Incarnation is for lack of holy meditation upon the subject, its miraculous nature, its promises, the person, the fruits, and the great salvation brought about by his suffering and death. 
What reason for rejoicing would he who does not attentively reflect upon this have? So on on the other words, on the flip side of that, if we have reflected and been changed by, by the incarnation and salvation of Christ, if we've been filled by his spirit, we don't really need to be called or told to worship, right? It's who we are and something we'll desire to do. We'll take every opportunity to join in and sing glory to God in the highest and joy to the world. The Lord has come along with the body of Christ and the heavenly host because what, what, what we find joy in is what we worship. John Piper writes, we don't worship joy. We say that joy in God is the heart of worship. What you find most joy in is what you worship. That's what worship is, valuing, treasuring, cherishing, enjoying, and being satisfied in God. And I'm telling you, if, if you're lacking joy this morning, then chances are you're worshiping something else. You're placing your hope and expectations in something else. But true joy is full satisfaction in God. And if our joy is placed in him through Jesus Christ, it should lead us to worship and hope in him. And not only in song, but in action as well. In in our satisfaction in him, what we'll be able to, in in our gratefulness to him, we'll be able to worship God through generosity and selfless service. Joyful gratitude always leads to joyful sacrifice and servitude. Or to sum it up simply, joy in God leads to living for God. And as we've already mentioned, This means in the hard times as well, the hard times in our life, even through suffering, even through trials. In their their letters to the early churches, Paul, Peter, and James all remind us that even trials and persecutions should be counted as joy in our lives because these things force us to draw closer to God who is the source and also because they can produce godly character in us and because they pale in comparison to the glory that awaits us. In other words, the joy of the Lord flourishes even in the midst of suffering. And it can get us through those times too. And and nothing can erase it when we're in Christ. On that note, one of the um, incredible things about the backdrop and and setting of the, the birth of Jesus is that the circumstances and events that played during and after were not joyous like surrounding the events. We're not very joyous. The backdrop of the Christmas story before, during, and after is scandal, poverty, corrupt leaders, murder, and greed. The list goes on. All this stuff is happening around them. But yet somehow interjected into all this hardship and, and brokenness, great joy, joy and hope in the glory of God. That he will redeem all of those things. In other words, again, this is a joy that that not only exists, but abounds, even in hard times, even through persecutions and trials, even through moments of despair and sorrow, through pandemics, through times of separation and isolation, and and, and especially in the most sinful and hard-hearted of hearts. A joy can break through. That's the good news of the Christmas story. That joy has come to us in the midst of our sin and our sorrow, and it's here to stay. 
Jesus' kingdom has come and it's here to stay. And it points us to a future hope when all the world will bow down and rejoice at the foot of the King of Kings. You know what? Personally, I, I, I can testify in, in needing to be reminded of this joy. In fact, and I know it's hard to believe with me being a pastor and all, but I experience, I also experience firsthand all the hardships and, and temptations and, and things of this world that try to quench and, and destroy our joy as much as the next person. But yet, in the midst of all these things that life throws our way, in, in all this darkness amongst all the cares of this world, there's that everlasting, unwavering light, that steadfast treasure bottled up and bubble, bubbling over in our hearts that says, I am your joy. I carried your sorrow at the cross so that your sorrow can be turned to joy unending. Jesus spoke this glorious truth to, uh, to his disciples before he went to the cross. John 16, 20 to 24 says, Jesus says to them, Very truly I tell you, You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So Jesus is saying them to hear that he's going to the cross, that he has to go to the cross to take the weight of our sin. And of course, they'll be filled with deep sorrow and overwhelmed with grief when he does, especially because the world's going to celebrate it. But he says their momentary grief will turn to everlasting joy, not only joy, but a joy that cannot be shaken, a joy that's made complete, a, a joy so strong that it moves us and calls us in Jesus' name and the power of his resurrection to glorify God in and through everything. And and this is exactly what happened after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. This is how the disciples respond. This is Luke 24, in Luke 24, 52, 53, it says, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. That's how we're changed by Christ and and called to respond to this good news of of new life with continuous worship, with blessing God. Ask for it in Jesus' name and your joy will be complete. And that leads us to the the final thing I want to talk about this morning, that, that this joy as the angels declared as well, is for all people. This joy, like our hope and like our peace, which we've talked about in the previous two weeks, isn't just for us, but is meant to be displayed throughout the world. Again, as the angel of the Lord declared, this is good news of great joy for all people. 
And as Mary reminds us in her song as well, the Lord's mercy is for all those who fear him from generation to generation, to all Abraham's offspring, to the spiritually hungry, to the poor, to the humble. Or as the song based on Psalm 98 says, joy to the world, not just for me, right? But joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. That should be our desire, right? As, as Christians, we need and, and should desire to carry the joy of the Lord with us at all times in every area of our lives, to be people of joy as we live in this broken and fallen world. And, and I'm not talking about being fake happy. We're not supposed to walk around like with like weird, creepy smiles on our faces hiding what's underneath, right? No, we, we, we need to be honest in our sorrow. We need to be honest in our grief and in our despair. But we can demonstrate in the midst of those seasons that we're not without hope, that the joy of the Lord is our strength and our hope. And speaking of which, it's, it's no secret that the influence of, of Christianity in our culture and in our society is dwindling. And I'd like to argue that it's not because we aren't, you know, signing petitions and making our voices known in our education systems or in politics or in morality wars and blog posts and whatnot. No, we're, we're pretty loud. The problem is that we're often loud in the wrong ways. Greg Forster writes, Christianity is losing its influence in contemporary society because people outside the church just don't encounter the joy of God as much as they used to. Christians want to pull a lever and see the world change. Political involvement is not the issue. The joy of God is the issue. Remember, the joy of God is the state of flourishing in mind, heart, and life that Christians experience by the Holy Spirit. We've been so anxious to influence society in the past century that we've ended up going after a lot of shortcuts. For some, it's politics. For some, it's education. For some, it's evangelism. We've been pulling a lot of levers. The common thread is that we're pulling these levers so hard, we leave no space for people to encounter the joy of God. One of the main reasons we've lost influence in culture is because we're not putting our joy on display for the world to see and encounter. The world needs to see how, how we joyfully love and give and serve the poor and marginalized. They need to see it displayed in the way that we work as unto the Lord in our offices, right? And, and, and in the way we rejoice and remain steadfast through difficult seasons and in our friendships and relationships and when we gather as a church to worship God. It's our joy in the Lord in every area of our lives that makes people notice that something's different about us. Which means, as well, on, on, on the flip side, that if people aren't encountering God's joy through us, if they're just encountering, you know, bitterness or judgment or whatever, right, chances are they're not going to be very interested in listening to what we say. If they think following Jesus is a religious killjoy, why would they want in? So let's ask ourselves, how can we bring the joy of the Lord into the world? into people's lives because it's that joy, the joy of Christ in us, which will break down the strongholds of evil. It's what will cause people to ask us what we're all about. 
And that's when we can tell them that we're all about Jesus, that Jesus makes our joy complete. As 1 Peter 1, 8-9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is what it looks like to know the unwavering and wonderful joy of the Lord, the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, as we're reminded of the Christmas story, Lord, that you loved us in such a way that you sent your son into the world to rescue us. When when we ponder what that means, what Jesus accomplished through it, Lord, I pray that it would fill us with just inexpressible and glorious joy for your name, for your salvation, for your redemption over us for the hope that we have in eternal life, for the hope that we have that you will restore the world one day, that, Jesus, you will come in victory and make all things new. And I pray, Lord, that the world would see that joy overflowing within our hearts, within our lives, Lord, that they would see the joy that you've given us the joy of your kingdom come, and the world would ask, what is going on? And we can tell them it's because of you and you alone. By your grace, by your spirit within us, Lord, let us overflow with joy, especially in this season, Lord God. I pray for those that that are struggling to live in this joy right now, through all that's going on in the world and in people's lives, Lord God. I pray for those right now, Lord, that, you would, that your spirit would just overcome them with your presence and remind them of their hope and the peace that you've given to us, that it would fill them with great joy, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.